Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Can, can everyone? Okay, there we go. Okay, you may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you for the gift of other people following after you. May we, as your people together, glorify your name. May we, as your people together, hope in you. May we, as your people together, hear and receive and submit to your word. Help us, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Austin mentioned, I, I'm sorry for some of the technical craziness that's going on. Um, we find a little relief in saying it's completely out of our control. It, it's coming from the transformer outside, but um, I know it's distracting. Thanks for being understanding. And um, if we have to go dark with no AC and, and sweat it out, we'll do what we need to do, okay? Um, <clears throat> we're looking at Exodus chapter 15. If you're our guest, we've been studying through the book of Exodus. And the, the banner that flies over the book of Exodus is this, that, that the one true God saves his people. They can trust him. They can walk with him, but he saves his people from beginning to end and all the way to the end. Here in chapter 15, we're at this point where the people of Israel have been set free from Egypt, but they're not home yet. They're in this in-between phase. And in the in-between phase, they're having to learn to follow the Lord. This is new to them. I mean, being the people of Israel is not new to them, but being set free from Egypt, being free from slavery, being free to serve the Lord, being free to do, uh, to make decisions and to follow, this is new. And they're, they're learning to follow the Lord. And now, friends, we have an immediate connection to this story. 
The immediate connection is that if we're in Christ, we have been delivered from the bondage of sin and death. And if we are in Christ, we've been set free to serve and follow the Lord. And all of us are in different spaces of learning to follow the Lord. But the truth that binds us all together is this isn't home. We're not home yet. But we're following the Lord and we're believing that he's going to guide us every step of the way home. This story today that Nathan just read for us gives us a glimpse into Israel's learning to follow the Lord and a very humbling and hopeful glimpse into the Lord's gracious and kind response to Israel. And um, so I've entitled this sermon, A Pattern and a Promise. Because what we're going to see unfolding in the book of Exodus is a pattern. It's not a, a, not a, a commendable pattern. It's a pattern of the Israelites consistently questioning the Lord and grumbling against him. But there's also a pattern of the Lord being gracious to his people in spite of their grumbling and complaining. And in the middle of this pattern, the Lord gives a promise to his people that's intended to carry them forward by faith. So I want us to look at these two things together. First, the pattern. First point, if you want to take notes, is grumbling and doubting. In short, If you just want the quick and easy version, in this passage, the humanity of Israel is on full display. And if you know anything about sinful humanity, that's never a good thing for it to be on full display. But as Israel is in this new reality, this new identity, this place of of lots of unknown, questioning transitions into doubt and questioning transitions into grumbling against the Lord. And then the question for us as we move forward is, how does the Lord respond to it? But before we get there, let's take a minute and look at what's going on. Look at verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So here's what's going on. They were on the other side of the Red Sea, the good side, the delivered side. The Lord has miraculously delivered them. He's miraculously destroyed the Egyptians. And the two enduring images of this story are Egyptian bodies floating up on the banks of the Red Sea and God's people celebrating and worshiping him for the the work that he's done. And so it's these two realities that push them forward. So they're out on the journey, and the passage tells us that they are three days into the journey. I'm assuming that there are many unknowns about the journey. If you'll recall, the Lord took them not on the short developed path, but on the long undeveloped path. He told them to follow the cloud and to trust him. But now here they are three days in and they've not yet found a place for water. 
questions are probably spilling out, and forgive me if I hear the questions like a father with about six third graders on a trip, but where are we? How long will it take? Where will we get food? And the particular one here is where will we get water? Now, this is really important. The text does not say they have been without water for three days. The text says for three days they haven't found water. Those are two very different realities that would very much shape how we read the rest of the text. Without water in the desert for three days, thousands upon thousands of people, crisis. That's not what the text says is happening here. The text says they just haven't found replacement water. So they're probably running low. The type A's among them are probably all going, oh no, what are we going to do? And that's probably a good impulse. But the text does not say that they ran out of water. They were going to die in the desert. And therefore, they had to awaken the Lord and remind him to keep his promise. That's not what the text says. The text says they had gone three days without finding new water. They had come to Marah, which they saw as potentially the answer to their water questions. And that water wasn't drinkable. But then this becomes the really important reality. Skip all the way down to verse 27. It tells us soon after Marah, they come to Elam. And in Elam, there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now let's let's piece that together. They were looking for water, and they were never going to run out of water logistically and providentially, the Lord knows what he is doing. He knows where he is leading them, and he is not going to forsake his people. The text gives us enough to piece that together. So then the part in the middle about grumbling becomes a very different reality when we understand that this was not crisis We need the Lord to wake up and remember us and help us so we grumble. That's not what it is. It is worry, questioning, moving into doubting, moving into fearing, moving into not trusting, moving into grumbling. That's what's going on in the text. So it tells us in verse 24... The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? It doesn't tell us the totality of their grumbling, but it was enough that then Moses cries out to the Lord and apparently says, what shall we drink? Now, before we get to how the Lord responded, which is the beautiful, gracious reality of this passage, it's important that we see The people moved into grumbling against Moses and grumbling against the Lord. The word grumble literally means to grumble. To complain about something in a bad-tempered way. That's what the word grumble means. The Old English Bible versions use the phrase murmur against. 
So the issue is not that the Israelites had questions about their, their present reality. The issue is that those questions became doubting and grumbling against God and, and not trusting his providential protection and provision and guidance and direction. Verse 24 is intended to encapsulate a heart posture of doubting and frustration moving into grumbling and murmuring against the Lord. You might think, well, perhaps you're reading too much into the word grumble. Well, that's what it means. Second, I would point out in Exodus chapter 14, the last time they doubted and, and grumbled, we get more detail. Exodus 14, 11, and 12 tells us, that the Israelites in that moment went so far as to say, did you just bring us out here to kill us? We probably would have been better just to stay in Egypt because the Lord's just going to let us die in the wilderness. That's where they were in chapter 14. Now they're grumbling again. And friends, this isn't the last time the grumbling is going to happen. It's going to happen in 16. It's going to happen in 17. It's going to happen in 18. As the Israelites are learning to follow the Lord, they're also having to learn to trust the Lord. So there's this pattern developing of in hardship, moving quickly to doubt, grumbling, and murmuring against the Lord. Now, if we are reading this passage and thinking like a mirror, not Mara, but mirror. Oh, those Israelites, such people of little faith. I can't believe they doubted the Lord. We're not reading the story right. I think everyone who is learning to follow the Lord likewise must learn the impulse of faith, which is the impulse to trust God even in very difficult and hard circumstances. So get this very clearly. The issue at hand is not questioning. The Lord is very able to handle our questions. Read the Psalms. They're filled. How long, O oh Lord? Will you forsake forever? So the, the issue here is not questioning reality. The Lord can handle that. And questioning reality, I actually would think, would argue is the content of our praying. Where I am, needing God's intervention. Why is it this way? Will you work? Will you help? That's prayer. So this, the grumbling here is not about questioning. The grumbling here is moving from questioning to doubting. Moving from questioning to accusing. Moving from questioning to just wondering if God has failed to keep his promises. Or potentially, has God failed to remain faithful to his word? 
And what the Lord is going to do in the rest of this passage is he's going to respond in a way that shows the Israelites that indeed he can be trusted. Indeed, he will keep his word. Indeed, he is good to his people. So, hey, wherever you guys are today, before we leave this, I just want to say this. I think we can unite around the fact that this year has been pretty hard for everybody. Can we unite around that? So the question is, will we believe that the 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 word of the Lord and the Lord's commitment to his people is unchanging no matter how tumultuous and hard we of a place we find ourselves in? That's the question. It's also likely in in a room this size that that some of us have been through such an acutely challenging season that we have moved to, to sheer doubt and accusation. Straight up grumbling and murmuring against and complaining. There's grace there too, friends. There's grace there too. Our connection to the story is Jesus. The Lord can meet with us and forgive us and mature us right out of our scoffing and our grumbling. That's actually what happens in this passage. He doesn't shame them one bit. So how does the Lord respond to the grumbling of the Israelites? Second point, if you want to take notes, is provision and promise. The Lord responds with a miraculous provision and he responds with a promise. For lack of a better word, the Lord's response is very fatherly, gentle, and has a very discipleship tone to it. Now, discipleship is one of those churchy words that we use in way too many different ways, but it just simply means to learn to follow. And I think the Lord's tone here is there's no guilt, there's no condemnation, but he, he is acting toward them in their grumbling in a way that teaches them to trust him. It teaches them to lean into him. It teaches them to say he's good and he's for us. And I want us, as we read this story, just to learn that impulse to say, the Lord is good and he's for us if we're in Christ. So first of all, the provision. Verse 25. The people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? That was 24. And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. I'm just going to do a little straw poll here because we're in the third service and we can go as long as we want to. So, Does anybody have any difficulty understanding verse 25? Anybody in this room have difficulty understanding what those words mean? Anybody? We're all good, right? They asked the Lord. He showed them a tree, put the tree in the water at the Lord's command. The bitter water became sweet. The people had something to drink. Right, right, it's very clear. 
there's thousands of paragraphs written about what that could possibly be. Here's what it is. God gave his people water. Next. Now. I think there's plenty of reason to believe that had God not given them water at Marar, they would have survived just fine. Elam was coming. So what's with the water? The Lord wants them to learn the impulse that he can be trusted because he will keep his promises to his people. He's giving them the water to help them in their weakness. It's a, it's a, it's a gift of grace upon grace. It's a gift of abundant mercy. It's a gift of the Lord saying, you're questioning, you're worried, you're doubting. I want you to receive mercy. I want you to know that I will fight for my people. I am your healer. I'm your defender. I'm the one who stands for you. In this provision, God is reminding the Israelites that they indeed will not die in the wilderness. They are reminded that he didn't bring them out of Egypt, that they could die somewhere else. He brought them out of Egypt to move them to the promised land. Second, the Lord gives them a promise. Look at verse, the, the latter half of verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Now, hold on. I thought you said he made them a promise. That sounds like law to me. Statute, rule. Let's keep reading. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. The promise is in the then part of that. I delivered you to make you my people. As my people walk with me, I am for my people. It's as if the Lord knows that they might be questioning if he's ever going to turn against them like he did the Egyptians. It's as if the Lord knows that they might be wrestling with the bodies floating up on the shore of the Red Sea. It's as if the Lord knows. And by the way, Moses gives us stark imagery of that in chapter 15. It's, it's as if, or excuse me, chapter 14. It's as if the Lord knows that the Israelites know that all the gods of Egypt change their mind all the time. And he's saying to them, I will be for you. That's the promise. That's the promise. I will not turn against you and destroy you like I did Egypt. I will do good to you and keep my promises to you. Yes, there's a law here. Yes, there's some conditional type language here. Yes, it's a statute and a rule. But the Lord is giving them that to say, 
if, if you will follow me, that which you've already been doing, if you will listen to me, that which you've already been doing, if you will pursue what I tell you and give, you, give you ear to the commandments that I speak to you, you can do so with faith that I will not turn against you. The Lord wants his people to know that A, he will lead them. B, he will speak to them. And C, he does desire them to follow him. But as they do so, he will be with them and he will bless them. So if you take all of that, what he's saying is, I delivered you for a purpose. And as you walk in that purpose, I will be for you. The people whom I deliver will walk in the purpose and I will be for them. You need not fear. Just listen, just obey, just lean in, just trust. I will be for you. That's what the Lord is saying. So to their grumbling, he does not speak one bit of judgment, one bit of condemnation. He speaks provision and he speaks promise. In short, the Lord did everything that I as a father would not have. I probably would have spoken like, be quiet, you'll get water when I say so. Or I might have leaned over the other shoulder and given some lecture about how stopping for water makes us then have to stop to go to the bathroom, which then makes us stop for water, which then makes us stop to go to the bathroom. And a 40-year journey is now a 120-year journey because you wanted water. But that's not how the Lord answered. He said, I want you to know that you can trust me. I want you to know that I'm for my people. I want you to know that I keep my word. And I want you to feel it deep down in your bones. So here's some water. And here's a promise. Listen, follow, obey. Egypt doesn't happen to you. Listen, follow, obey. You're on the right side of the sea. You're not in the sea. Now, these, these if-then pieces of the Old Testament are really hard for us as modern Christians to wrestle through. I just want you to know, this is the first one we've seen in Exodus, and it's not the last. Chapter 20, 21, 22, a whole bunch of this type of language, okay? So we're gonna spend more time thinking about these things, but just a few thoughts on some of the if-then-ness of this language. Number one, this promise slash statute slash rule slash test is given to a people already redeemed. It's given to a people already redeemed. They're not still back in Egypt. The Lord is not saying, if you obey me well enough and long enough, then I will deliver you. That's not what's being said here at all. What's being said is, I've already delivered you. If you keep walking in the calling of the deliverance, then I will continue to be your God. 
The, the point is they've already been redeemed. This is not a pathway for salvation. This is, not guide, this is guidance for living as God's people. It's not a pathway of earning God's love, earning God's grace, or earning God's mercy. Frankly, it's impossible to earn God's love. It's impossible to earn God's grace. It's impossible to earn God's salvation. Those come from him and by his powerful hand. But we who have received salvation have then been made alive, have then been freed to walk in his way, and it's to us who are seeking to follow him in a fallen world that he's giving such guidance. And I promise we're going to talk about that a whole bunch. Number two. The the conditional if-then language in verse 26 reminds us That just because we've been saved, to put that in good southern Christian vernacular, doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want, however we want, whenever we want. This language is to remind Israel that they as a nation don't have a blank check to write however they want to. They're not a nation who gets to go decide their identity and their calling and their purpose That's all been given to them. They are the Lord's. They belong to the Lord to glorify the Lord. The charter's been written. And this is a a reminder to be who you were saved to be. That's what the Lord has for you, and he will help you do that. So just as Israel doesn't get a blank check to do whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want, neither do we as the people of God. We were delivered and redeemed and set free so that we could live for and serve God. We have a purpose and we have a calling. Third, There's a distinction between none of the plagues will happen to you and I will give you prosperity, comfort, and desire. Those are two very different things. Prosperity, comfort, and the desires, all the things you desire are not promised to the people of God. What's promised to the people of God is the blessing and the deliverance and the presence and the provision of God. And so if we push this type of language into health, wealth, comfort, and ease, we have pushed it too far. I can be poor and walk in God's blessings. I can suffer And walk under the hand of God's blessing. I can do without many things. And walk under God's blessing. Job. The book of Job. Suffered much. And walked under the hand of God's blessing. I believe Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Flipped the health, wealth, ease, and comfort gospel right on its head when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall she get. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
God's presence and God's blessing and God's love are not connected to our immediate circumstances. They're connected to his commitment to safely move us step by step all the way home. Now, as we try to summarize this text, I have four things I want us to remember. Number one, this text drives us to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is this, that the son of God, his name is Jesus, took on flesh, lived a perfectly holy life, becoming the perfect Israel that Israel never could be. Fulfilling all the if-then language here in verse 26 that Israel could never fulfill. And died so that sinners could be brought into the blessings of such language. The eternal blessings of being the people of God. The gospel tells us that nobody earns that status. It's a gift of grace. The gospel tells us that we are saved by the blood of Jesus. And so here's the thing. We can't earn God's favor. And we can't earn peace and ease in this world. So let us run to Jesus and be covered in his blood. And trust in him again and again and again. If you're here today and you're not sure what it looks like to be a Christian, you're not sure what it would mean to become a child of God, it's the gospel of Jesus. That's the answer. I would love to pray with you, talk with you, encourage you, help you connect with Christ. Please stop me after this service. I would love to help you take a step toward Christ because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Second, One of the hallmarks that I see in our culture is that most of us, if we're honest, if our humanity is fully exposed, hate being told what to do. This language of a statute and a rule call upon us to learn that Often laws are a gift of grace and not unnecessary encumbrances upon our freedom. Particularly the laws of a holy and just God. So a simple example, if you teach your four-year-old to not stand in the middle of Bonita Parkway, are you loving them? or inhibiting their freedom? Yes, you're doing both. But it's for good. It's rooted in love. It's rooted in hope. I want us to receive the laws of God, the preposition there matters, of God as a gift of grace for our good. So when the Lord says, have no other gods before me, that's actually for our good. 
And when Paul said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and wives, submit to your husbands, that's actually for our good because God's word, God's laws are, yes, they, they restrict freedom in some ways, but they are good restrictions for the joy of his people and the glory of his name. So these passages call upon us to learn that laws are gifts of grace when given by a just God. Third, this passage calls upon us, particularly this part about I will put none of the diseases on you, to learn the difference between eternal good and temporal comfort. This calls upon us to learn the difference between eternal good and temporal comfort. I can only speak for my own soul. But usually in temporal comfort, I lean into Jamie and joy and hedonism. And in temporal discomfort, I lean into the Lord. So, whatever the Lord gives us in the present, let us remember that, that temporal discomfort does not undermine the eternal goodness of the Lord. He is doing good for his people day by day, moment by moment, step by step. And this passage calls upon us to remember that and to lean into it. When things go awry... How will God's people respond? The Lord is a benevolent father who teaches his people to trust him and his eternal good for his people again and again and again and again. Look to the Lord. Hear his word, receive his word, pursue the things that he commands and he promises that he will be with us every step of the way, no matter the hardship and no matter the circumstance.